1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. Here are two from the vaults, Marjorie Ingle on how Jewish mothers raise amazing kids, and science writer Ed Yong on the microbes living
0: inside us. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Marjorie Ingle on the line. Her new book is Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children. Hi, Marjorie. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, Rose. Thanks for asking me. So successful, creative, empathetic, independent. Why those four adjectives? What made those the, the priorities?
3: Well, because I couldn't just say nice, 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 nice. <laughs> um, you know, for, uh, for me, part of uh, I think we're stressing accomplishment too much, that accomplishment one hopes comes from, uh, you know, raising kids who are kind and empathetic, and that you don't have to drive like a flock of sheep to do things um, and who are creative thinkers because creativity, I think, is essential in a world that changes as fast as ours does. So I'm worried. Basically, this was a response to saying we have to raise kids who do well on tests. Uh-huh, I see. So um, you're moving away
1: from that whole fill in the bubbles correctly idea into a, a more uh, flexible approach to a changing world.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because filling in the bubbles, I think there are two problems with that. One is that tells you what the answer is right now, but not what the answer is in the future. And two, I think that when we teach our kids that their worth comes from bubble filling, we end up, um, you know, pushing them to cheat. Because that's the only way they see their own validity is doing the best on this test. And it sets them up against one another rather than being collaborative type of people, which I think collaboration is going to be essential as we move into, again, more and more complicated worlds. And, um, I think it makes them into jerks, <laughs> basically. And, um, you talk about, uh, the importance of
1: distrusting authority and learning to argue. So when parents are coming at this from a more Disciplinarian perspective. How do you sell them on that? How do you show them that that's an advantage for kids and for parents?
3: Um, I think one reason the Jews have been so successful in so many different time periods throughout history, and both in eras and places where Jews were fairly acculturated and fairly, you know, welcome in the mainstream culture, and also in places where they faced terrible anti-Semitism is because Jews have never been unquestioningly accepting of authority. Uh, accepting authority has not worked well for the Jews over time. And that doesn't mean being disrespectful. It doesn't mean being rude. But it does mean thinking, uh, what are other people's agendas? What do other people want? And um, not being a tremendous people pleaser, which can be a problem, I think, particularly for women. So maybe, you know, that was something that was in the back of my head as I was writing. Um, but you're never going to break paradigms. You're never going to create new ways of thinking. You're never going to be a scientific innovator if all you're doing is trying to replicate what came before and trying to get, you know, uh, the pleasing answer as opposed to the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book is um, a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Isidore Isaac Robbie said that what made him a scientist was his mother saying to him when he was a little boy growing up, you know, in on the Lower East Side, not with no money, with parents who barely spoke English. He said other people's mothers asked them, um, what did you learn today? And my mother asked me, did you ask a good question today? And that's what made me a scientist. That's such um, a Jewish said, story. One- yeah. <laughs> yeah if there's one story that encapsulates the book I think it's that that's
1: that's an amazing story because um that's so true to my experience also uh growing up jewish is is that that was absolutely that was absolutely the approach and also did you argue yeah. well today
3: yeah <laughs> uh did you go to the bathroom <laughs> did you, <laughs> what did you eat your lunch right <laughs> So um,
1: you also talk about raising children to be mensches. What, is, what does it mean to be a mensch? That's, that's been a, a pretty flexible term over the years.
3: Yes, yes. Um, I mean, mensch literally means a man in German. Um, but in Yiddish usage, a mensch is a good human being. Um, a mensch is someone who stands up for other people, who speaks up against injustice, um, who when other people won't speak up, speaks up. Um, and I think that is ultimately what all of us should want from our children, particularly, you know, watching this election cycle with so much mm. meanness and cruelness. Um, you know, we want it is, you know, I, I wish I hadn't said nice in the beginning of this interview, because nice is this sort of Minnesota word that has, you know, no uh, spine to it. Uh, kind may be a better word, mm. um, but that's what that's what we need our kids to be. That's what we need our world to be
1: and um you say there's there's uh, to to make this uh, a commandment at first not a request that you you don't say please say please you say you say please and thank you every time
3: uh yeah, so you, with, you withhold the snack until you get the please and the thank you mm-hmm. um you know kids uh you know we all have to learn nobody is born knowing how to do everything um so you know, in the beginning, you make you have the kid exercise the muscle by urging them to exercise the muscle. And then you stop praising them for doing what the hell they're supposed to do. You know, you don't you don't get a cookie repeatedly when you are, just act like a basic human being.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So
3: um, yes. you
1: also say uh, religion is a team sport in which spirituality is just one play. So how how do religion and spirituality intersect with this in addition to concepts of Jewish culture?
3: that's a great question. Um, you know, I uh I don't consider myself a very religious person. I consider myself a pretty well-read person and I consider myself, you know, very attached to Jewish culture and tradition and history. Um, but you know, I don't keep Shabbat. Um, I don't go to shul every I don't go to synagogue every weekend. Um, but I think so much of what has driven um Identification with Judaism over time is the social justice aspect of Judaism. Um, you know, back again when people didn't really take care of Jews and Jews were coming to America in big numbers, Jews were setting up and, – and in the old country too, Jews set up their own burial societies, their own loan societies, their own charitable organizations – you know, it's not only about you and God, it's also about you and humanity. And indeed, when you look at the Ten Commandments, some of its commandments are about God, but a lot of the Ten Commandments are how you treat other people. Um so I'm wary of people who talk about spirituality as this solo pursuit, as like, Yeah, I had this really, really good meditation session and oh my God, I really felt in touch with my personhood. And it's like that's great. But you know, a real source of spiritual identity should be being with others, being, you know, a uh, a social animal.
1: Uh, so you talk and, about uh, taking kids with you to, uh, to volunteer, to do good works. Uh, is that
3: all part of the same thing? It totally is. Um, you know, one of the stories that I told in the book was when Josie, my older daughter, was, too, I started having her go through old toys. Um, you know, we live in the East Village, which is a great place to live where you see all kinds of people just living all on top of one another. So we live across the street from a homeless shelter. And um, I had Josie start collecting old toys to bring to the shelter. And, of course, like all children, even if she hadn't touched something in seven months, she's like, no, I can't. Uh, but I made her pack up stuff and I said there are other children who don't have any toys and we're going to give them, you know, these toys and that'll make us both feel really good. And we brought the, um, the toys finally over to the homeless shelter and the guy who answered the door was so sweet. Um, and Josie actually, I think, got that, okay, this was a good thing that we did. But then he came back, and he chased us down the block, and he gave Josie a present, which was a giant, giant bucket of markers. And <laughs> she was not allowed to have markers because she was two, and she would write on the wall. <laughs> so I'm like, this is not the takeaway I want you to have from this doing of a good deed, my darling. Uh But, you know, gradually both kids figured out that you do nice things without expecting to be rewarded for them.
1: So how else do you recommend getting kids involved in in volunteering? Because I I think young children sort of start out very self-focused. They barely even understand that other people are people. So how do you bring them from that to you do a good deed uh, without any expectation of reward just for the warm fuzzies?
3: Right. That's a great question. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's developmentally appropriate and normal for your kid at first not to realize that there are other human beings in the world, That's you know how it's supposed to work. But um, I, you know, I don't think you have to do these incredibly, you know, virtuous, halo wearing, noble things with your kids. If you just teach your kids, if two of your friends are fighting and you can distract them and make them not be fighting anymore, that's a good deed. If you can, you know, if you see that, uh, someone at the birthday party is away from the table for a minute save them a piece of cake so they make sure that they get they get a piece of cake um you know if uh you know if we're at a family reunion uh go talk to old people i know it's hard but just go over and say hi and be sweet um and then there are also the you know The standing up to bullies thing, which I think is so hard for kids to do, especially when the person who's doing the bullying is your friend. Mm. Um, I think that's a lesson that we can all and we all should be teaching our kids really early on. Um, I think there are all kinds of ways to do good deeds. And I think the problem is when we get caught up in thinking it means that we have to send you know, our kid to go do something in Guatemala so they can do it for a college essay. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about a, a way of life that permeates the way you go about, you know, your day to day business.
1: Teaching kids about bystander intervention is so interesting. I never hear anyone talk about this. I hear people talking about what you do if you're bullied. And I hear people talk to parents about what to do if your kid is the bully. But you've got this third person there, which is the bully's friend. And that's so Interesting. That's such a complicating factor. And it's so accurate to the way the world is. This bullying doesn't happen in in the middle of nowhere with no one else around.
3: Right. And I think that we've all noticed that once one person starts to say, hey, no, other people start joining in. You just need that one person to take Mm -hmm. that brave leap to start. Um, And uh, I don't know. And I I realize it's so hard when it's your friend. But I also think that one way of putting what, that, when we talk about it that way, when the bully is your friend, I think that also helps everyone, and that makes us realize that bullies are our friends. That we'll, that I, I worry that sometimes we other bullies too much, and we say, you know, like these are evil people. We have a zero tolerance policy, and like no, you know, your kid can bully. I, I you know, I I was I, I bet you were too. I was bullied, and I can think of times when I was a bully. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's much more nuanced than the portrayal that we have of like you know the innocent victim and the evil you know the evil doer the the Draco malfoy right um
1: who who so, even gets yeah. a little bit of redemption in the end?
3: yes, thank God, <laughs> <laughs> although I do remember reading somewhere that uh j k Rowling was really upset that uh girls. Uh, were fantasizing about Draco, that she's like, he is a bad boyfriend. He would be a bad boyfriend. I'm like he would be a bad
1: boy. He would be a bad boyfriend, <laughs> but you know, there's uh,
3: danger is always seductive. Yeah, we've always liked the bad boys. So. I mean, he looked look, he looked like a uh, Spike on Buffy.
1: Right. So alike. you know, so you've you've got to you you have to prepare your kids for that, and not just sort of let it yes. happen to them.
3: Right. And I mean, I think that actually, you know, if I'm going to bring it back around to the book, you know, the chapter about um, being, uh, you know, wary of authority, um, I think that that actually might be a good skill in being to tell, being able to tell when a guy is, you know, a sort of twinkly eyed troublemaker as opposed to like an actual schmuck. Can I say schmuck?
1: <laughs> sure. I don't think I don't Yay. think the FCC uh, yeah, really cares too much about Yiddish. Okay, good. <laughs> so you use uh, archery as a and as a metaphor for sin and vice versa. So tell us tell us a little bit about the connection there, the linguistic connection.
3: Okay, so the word "chet" in Hebrew, which is usually translated as sin, actually means literally missing the mark, and I think that's a great way to think about when you screw up because sin I mean that's a I mean even the word is terrifying with that initial sibilant s and that one you know syllable and it just sounds so um, fatal and unrecoverable from and awful whereas missing the mark I think that immediately makes you think I could shoot again I could try harder I could I could get it right the next time and I think that's a great way I mean uh I am the queed of going into a shame spiral when I think I've screwed up and like I will go down a hole forever. Um but I think if you if I were able to translate that in my own head as simply missing the mark, um, that would be a lot healthier. Um because uh and um yeah, I think we should all think about and I, I think this ties back into the whole thing about othering bullies. Um, you know, no, you screwed up. You are always redeemable.
1: Mm. That's a, that's a very important concept.
3: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you also, I feel like shame is also, um, you know, uh, despite the stereotype of the Jewish mother, you know, being this person who wants everyone else to wallow in guilt. Um, I'm not sure that shame is, uh, you know, momentarily, it it definitely has its purpose, but when you end up wallowing, that ends up, A, being the sort of narcissistic, you know way of avoiding having to fix what you screwed up um and b it just it feels too hopeless you know and there's you know hopelessness is not a helpful uh a helpful feeling we're going to take a quick break but don't go away
0: book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com pw radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on
2: demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with Marjorie Ingle, author of Mamala Knows Best. Uh, so you have experience with reform, conservative, and orthodox Judaism and uh, how do you address parents from all of those groups? And how do you write a book about Jewish parenting in general when those approaches can be so different?
3: That is a great question. And we're trying to make this uh, book appeal to people with no Jewish background whatsoever. That's and the next question. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll wait for that one then. Um, you know, I do, you know, if I can be totally honest with you, I worry that some uh, people with uh, an Orthodox yeshiva background will, leaf through this book and go, I know all of these stories already. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe people with who aren't Jews at all will go, this is just way too Jewish for me. But, you know, I was a folklore and mythology major in college, and I just think everybody's traditions are fascinating. Um, so whether you're looking at this uh, as an insider or as an outsider, um, I think there's always something you can learn from other people's stories and rituals and tradition. Um, also, I'm not really all that interested in theology. The book is mostly about uh, texts and history and culture and pop culture and high culture um, throughout uh, different time periods and um, different settings. Uh, so I don't think, you know, uh, for me... Uh, the God stuff has never been the center of my Jewish identity. And I don't think that it should have to for anybody to profit from reading the book.
1: So how do you make a coherent narrative out of all of those different ingredients? That must have been a real struggle.
3: I have to give a huge shout out to uh, my editor, Heather Jackson, um, who is not Jewish, um, who i had been under the impression as a you know since i, I uh, i've done a, a quite a bit of ghostwriting i really believed when people said editors don't edit and she was just a ruthless taskmaster uh she uh absolutely cracked the whip i ended up cutting 20,000 words in the second draft um, and i think uh we ended up mostly due to her uh doing a really good job um, creating something that's definitely bouncy and bounces around but that's all i think that's also kind of part of if i may say so part of its charm um, that hopefully it's funny as well which uh you know gives you a little bit of leeway in terms of making it relevant to a whole lot of different kinds of people
1: So comparisons with Amy Chua of Tiger Mother fame and Pamela Drucker of Bringing Up Bebe are uh, kind of inevitable. I think, in fact, I think I saw at least one review that did that. Um, I saw two. (laughs) uh, And uh, when I I told my husband I was interviewing you and what your book was about, he said, oh, you know, she and the the Tiger Mom woman should have a mom off.
3: (laughs) 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 Well, first of all, I, I really enjoyed the Tiger Mom book. Which had nothing to do with the way it was marketed. Right. It's not a book of child rearing. It's a very self-deprecating memoir about the way she was so draconian in raising her kids. And with one kid, it did indeed lead to Carnegie Hall. And the other kid pushed back so hard and was so, uh, furious at the way, at her mother's child rearing strategy that finally her husband, a Jew by the way, said to her, you know, look, you gotta back off if you want to have a relationship with this child. And so I thought that the book ultimately was this very sort of funny. I tried to be such a hard ass, and it ended up not being great for both of my kids. She had a fifty-fifty success rate with that. Um, and I thought, you know, I thought that it was very dryly funny, but it's not a parenting manual. And um, you know, bringing up Bebe, I thought was an interesting look at. It was more about Sort of French culture than it was almost about child rearing. And I I just can't really imagine any American parent, um, let alone, you know, a Jewish parent being sort of so blithely. I think sometimes you do have to intervene in your kid's life Mm -hmm. or at least. And at least show, I think one thing that has worked well for the Jews is showing interest in your kid's life. We don't try to force them to be doctors and lawyers historically, but you figure out what your kid is interested in, what your kid is good at. And then like you're like, let me give you whatever support I can to push you in that direction and to help you do your best at it, explore and push yourself. Um, but, you know, A, I'm not going to be the one who's pushing you and B, I'm not going to do the, the whole French benign neglect thing. Right, so How's that for an answer
1: <laughs> some some somewhere somewhere in between
3: somewhere in between,
1: or maybe yeah. often in it's in its own third direction you're you're sort of complicating the yeah. story again,
3: I mean, I feel like when a lot of where the book ended up being is if you want to raise a mensch, you kind of have to be a mensch, so a lot of it turned into this kind of you know, I am assuming a female reader, um and I think a lot of it turned out to be this sort of cheerleading about you know. You can be just a you know a good enough mother is completely good enough, it's better than good enough, and you deserve to have a life and you deserve not to be incredibly stressed out and worried that other people are gonna be judging your parenting because guess what they are um that you should have a whole life and a world and intellectual and emotional life outside of your kids and uh you know and you should be modeling the kind of behavior you know be the change you want to see in the world as a non jew once said Um, so I think a lot of it ended up being about wanting, uh, women who are so frequently told that they're, um, not living up to some impossible standard. Um, I kind of wanted to be a little bit of a cheerleader and a new go girl.
1: I know among uh, the parents I know, we talk a lot about parent, the kid you have, Uh, So not taking any philosophy wholesale, but understanding that you have to base your parenting around your kid, but you also have to parent as the parent you are.
3: I love that. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. Um, You know, we are, we all are who we are and say, you know, uh, don't be, you know, when you tell somebody who's trying to get pregnant, oh, just relax and it'll happen. When you tell someone who is nervous, oh, don't worry. I mean, these are not helpful things to say to people. So, yeah, I mean, if you are a tightly wound person, you know, and now say something Buddhist, you know, recognize that, observe it in yourself, uh, you know, honor it, and then do your best to just let that go and look at, you know, look at your kid. Your kid is probably doing okay and you know being fluttery and anxious um isn't necessarily helpful but then i also think about the um the whole world of it was a long time ago for me but the world of preschool drop off mm-hmm. when you see the the combo of the parent who just runs with their kids screaming the parent who sneaks away and then the parent who just flutters so much they make their kid more anxious that there are uh you know, I think that there's probably for that one, there's a right answer. And that one is, you know, I love you. You are going to have a good day. There are people here to take care of you. I will see you at two. Mwah! Um, you know, like, uh, But I, I totally appreciate that we're all getting ordered and pulled in so many different directions at once. And it's very, very hard to feel like you're doing the right thing when somebody is constantly telling you you're doing the wrong thing.
1: Um, speaking of anxiety, you talk about post Holocaust anxiety in particular. Uh, how do you raise Jewish children in the shadow of you know, thousands of years of persecution without misery and anxiety and fear kind of all around?
3: Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I did want to point out that the Jewish mother stereotype that this book sort of deals with is very much based on a this period that post-war period of jewish history where uh this, you know the sort of stereotype of a neurotic clingy mother perhaps had some uh actual realness behind it um, but the book also addresses the fact that as much as some people want to portray Jewish history as this endless stream of persecution, there have been periods uh, of history in Spain, in Egypt, during the Middle Ages, um, when Jews were fairly acculturated, fairly wealthy. It was not that different from America now. Um, so I do get concerned when Jews want to... Uh, wave this banner of we are the most persecuted people ever in the world. Um, because uh, I think that that can get in the way of looking at the world we live in right now and the social justice actions we need we should be undertaking right now and encouraging our kids to undertake to help people who maybe are not us who are suffering. Um, and I think coming at the whole world from this perspective of... Um, we are perpetually a persecuted minority can blind us to opportunities to uh, help other people. Um, so yes, uh, you know, anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise throughout the world. Um, but raising a child in an atmosphere of fear and constant suspicion uh, which is different from distrust of authority, which the book goes into, um, is not a healthy way for anybody to live.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And that's very much the, the Judaism that I was raised with the sense of, you know, terrible things have happened and have happened to people like us. And so now when terrible things happen to other people, we should empathize with that. We should, you know, understand those are the people we need to help and not just sort of sit there and go, Yeah, man, me too. Amen, amen, amen. So this is your first book under your own name since 1998. Why did you yep. step away from ghostwriting and decide to uh, put your byline on this?
3: Um, I was really, you know, I was interested in writing um, a book that uh, sort of looked at uh, the Jewish mother over time. I love to research. It's my best way of procrastinating when I'm not writing. Um, so getting to sort of delve into a gazillion different texts from a gazillion different time periods was super duper fun. Uh, and also why my book was an entire year late. Uh, but um, I wanted to look at the mother figure and why my, you know, I had some discomfort with the term Jewish mother, which is ridiculous because I am proud to be Jewish. I, you know, have had, had, had columns in two different Jewish publications, but something about Jewish mother made me really, um, footsie, uh, as my own grandmother would say. So, um, I wanted to address sort of why, you know, it, it occurred to me that, um, there's a, a lot of misogyny to the stereotype of the Jewish mother, mm-hmm. that it was a creation of male writers and comedians in that post-war period. Um, and that it was just one more way we could try to make mothers and women feel bad. And so I didn't want to make this sort of, you know, to go back to the sort of the tiger mom thing, not the book itself, but the way it was marketed. I didn't want to be this do this or your child will turn out You know, terrible and people from other countries will eat our lunch and, or like, you know, I I always, I call the, um, the bringing up baby book in my head, French babies don't get fat, which I know is not the title, (laughs) but I didn't want it to be this thing of fear. You know, I wanted to write a book that was fun to read and sort of celebratory and not, uh, you know, perhaps ironically not guilt provoking at all. So that was really the motive. And uh,
1: speaking of your side projects, one of them is Sorry Watch, which I love, and I didn't even know you were involved with when I first uh, oh. si- signed you up to to do this interview. So I was really excited to uh, to find that in your bio. Um, how has looking at other people's apologies and analyzing them uh, shaped your parenting? When apologizing is one of the most important things we can teach our kids.
3: Good question. Um, so my friend Susan McCarthy and I, my co-blogger on Sorry Watch, we like to look at good apologies as well as bad ones because I do feel like we live in a world where everybody is so eager to scream "gotcha," and everybody loves to, you know, sort of uh, salivate over terrible apologies. Um, but we also wanted to point out some really good ones. That it is so hard to admit that you screwed up. So you know, uh, you know, when your kid is desperately trying to squirm out of, uh, owning, um, you know, owning something bad that they did. Uh, you know, look, they're no different from Lance Armstrong, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's hard to apologize. Well, when you have to acknowledge that you did something really bad, um, and it can't be the thing that happened. You have to say the thing that you did. Um, and it can't be mistakes were made, you know, you can't have the passive voice um, it can't be, you know. Well, you just didn't understand my sense of humor, or oh, well, I was provoked. Uh, an apology has to be this true. A good apology has to be um, this almost naked kind of: I messed up, I owned it, and I'm sorry. And here's what I'm going to try to do to not make this happen again. And not only does it has, I think that made me more sympathetic to my children's struggles. Um, it's made me sort of uh it's been good for me personally to add the here's how I'm not going to do it again, um, because we screw up as parents all the time, too. So I can say to my kid, you know, you're right. I didn't notice that you were, you know, that, you know, you were suffering. And here's how I'm going to pay more attention. I will, you know, we'll, I'll check in with you after you come in from school. Um, you know we'll talk about what's bothering you. Um, so I, I feel like there's something everyone can learn from apologies that can, you know, uh, permeate every aspect of our lives.
1: So if there's one takeaway that you'd like parents to have from your book, whether they're Jewish parents or not, mothers or not, um, what what would you what would you want to convey most of all?
3: Um, I think, you know, I did make jokes about don't read parenting books in my own parenting book. Um, nobody knew better than Dr. Spock, who said, trust yourself, you know, more than you think you do. I think we all have that little spark in us, that little instinct within us that says, um, I kind of know what I have to do here. And if you can just tune into listening to that, um, and trust yourself, um, I think we are all capable of being really good parents.
1: That's beautiful.
3: <laughs> that wasn't very Jewish. I needed to put something in there. Jewish and not, we are all capable.
1: <laughs> I've been talking thank with you. Marjorie Engel, and you can find her book, Mama Knows Best, in stores right now. Marjorie, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Rose.
1: I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today we've got Ed Young on the line. His new book is I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. Hi, Ed. I'm so glad you could join us.
4: Hi, Rose. Glad to be here.
1: So let's talk about these microbes. I think we all sort of are aware that we've got a lot of little organisms living inside us, but uh, come on, blow our minds with this. How how many, <laughs> how many are there? What are they doing?
4: Okay. So in the average human body, there are around 37 trillion bacteria and other microbes, which is roughly one for each one of our own human cells. So... Um, At most, I am just half the person who I think I am. Um, And these microbes are not just um, passengers or hitchhikers. They are really crucial parts of our lives. They help us to digest our food. They protect us from disease. They help to build and calibrate our immune systems. They shape and sculpt our organs. It's possible they might even influence our behavior. They touch every aspect of our biology. Um, And my contention with the book is that we cannot really understand our lives all those of the entire animal kingdom if we don't also understand our partnerships with microbes because it turns out that that our lives are built in partnership in negotiation with these tiny hidden organisms that live in us and on us so now that we uh, we know
0: we're only half who we think we are uh, tell us how tell us how these microbes do form the other half
4: uh, so in all sorts of ways, um, as I said, they, they sculpt and shape our organs. So they, if you look at um, animals that have no microbes, that are raised in sterile environments, um, they have all sorts of problems. Their, their bones, their blood vessels, uh, their guts, their immune systems, all of these develop um, in poor shape. And that's because we rely on microbial signals to stimulate the growth of different parts of our body and to help them mature into their, their adult form. We know that microbes help to calibrate the immune system. They, they build different parts of, uh, different groups of immune cells and then, um, calibrate them so that they are responsive to infections, but also not overreactive. So they don't go berserk at, um, benign things in the world around us like pollen or dust. Um, and we know, we're starting to realize that, um, that the microbes in the human body um, are deeply involved in a range of health conditions. Everything from um, obesity and malnutrition to diabetes to inflammatory bowel disease. So many of these um, uh, health problems that we think of as just the province of individuals um, have this microbial influence too. And um, if we go beyond us to to look at the broader animal kingdom, some of the the, uh, dependencies that animals have on microbes go even further. We have um, squid that have glowing bacteria inside their bodies that camouflage them from predators by cancelling out their silhouettes. We have um, deep sea animals, worms and shellfish that have no mouths or guts. They rely entirely on the microbes in their body to provide them with energy. And even familiar creatures like cows or goats or sheep get something like 70% of their energy from the microbes in them, which help them to digest the otherwise indigestible fibers in the plants that they eat. So everywhere we see that the entire animal kingdom, all of our lives, everything that all the biology that we're familiar with in zoos or natural history programs, all of that is built on this microbial foundation.
1: So um, germ theory was revolutionary, like the whole concept of there being these tiny little organisms that we couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, sort of the first thing we did was to attack them, was to see them as bad things to that were causing us harm. And uh, we, we had the whole antibiotic revolution, which has saved countless lives. But it sounds like we maybe went a little too far.
4: Mm, yeah, I, I think so. Um, both... Both practically and culturally. I mean, cu- culturally, we come to we've come to associate microbes um, uh, with death, disease, um, dirt. They are things that we want to get rid of. Their presence is a sign of filth or, or imminent um, pl- imminent pestilence. But that's not true. The vast majority of microbes are either benign or beneficial to us, and by Oh, by being a bit too gung-ho in our attempts to remove them from our lives, from our bodies, from our antibiotics, from our, um, surroundings with antibacterial everythings, um, we have, we might be setting ourselves up for, for problems. Now, obviously, as you say, antibiotics have been an enormous health good, but I think our over-reliance on, on sanitation, on, on cleaning everything to, um, to within an inch of, of its life, Means that we are, we lack exposure to the microbes that, um, that were once thriving parts of our bodies. So, um, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that without that exposure at an early age, our immune systems grow up unprepared to, to face the outside world. They are, they become twitchy. Um, they, they start uh, reacting far too vigorously to benign things in the world around them and even to our own microbes. And maybe that's why we are seeing such large spikes in the incidence of inflammatory diseases and autoimmune diseases and allergies um, in the Western world over the last several decades. Um, so I think that's, that's just one sign of how much we depend on microbes in order to, to, um, shape our health and to, and to protect us from illness rather than just causing it.
0: I know that, uh, Americans are, are obsessed. You would. You were just talking about this, with the antibacterial wipes and 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 the uh, gels. Uh, I don't know if this is the same thing in in the UK and throughout Europe, but but uh, these were you were saying that we we limit our defenses. Is this something that that we do just daily, or is this something that will affect mostly our kids who we've had grow up without squeaky clean environments, or is this some sort of evolutionary thing?
4: Uh, well, that's a really good question. So. Um, a bit of everything. Um, it seems that um, exposures in, at a very early point in life are important because that's when um, the immune system is starting to develop and starting to set itself. Um, and you know, we we see in extreme cases, like um, in cases of uh, like malnourishment, for example, in in the developing world, that um, kids whose microbes don't, whose microbial communities don't mature at the the right age, who end up with a microbiological age that's less than their biological one have immune problems, their problems digesting their food, they they end up malnourished, they have kind of they have a lot of different health problems. Um, it, whether whether our um, whether an over reliance on antibacterials and sanitation is affecting our health as adults is hard to say, but. You know, let's think about things ecologically. As I've said, like, we, we are home to all these microbes. We are, we are each of us an ecosystem, just like a rainforest or, a, or a coral reef. And if we remove, um, the, if we remove the species that normally live on us, we create vacancies. We create openings that potentially more dangerous species, those that do cause disease could take up and fill. Um, And evolutionarily, that's, that's one of the big questions. We know that the diversity of microbes in the human body seems to have, um, shrunk over time. So. Apes like gorillas and chimpanzees have more microbes a wider range of microbes in them than say hunter gatherers who have more microbes than people who live in rural communities who have more than people who live in urban communities so there's been this winnowing over time and I think the big question now is whether that is a problem or not so some people would say that it is that we are losing some of these old friends who do us good others would say that we have compensated for their loss in different ways it's just like you know we more people are, are short-sighted now than they used to but then we have glasses and contact lenses so it's not much of a problem so it's 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 still a line of active research. What what that narrowing means for our health, and and um, what we might be able to do about it. But I think the really important thing for us to bear in mind just right now is is that microbes aren't our enemies. You know, they're they're not necessarily our friends either. But they are just an important part of the world around us. And if we just try and destroy them because we see them as villains, we might be setting ourselves up for a fall
0: you had mentioned earlier uh about the the you know the role might you know bacteria might play uh might influence an organism's propensity say for obesity or even in, in autism um could you talk a little bit more about that i mean i know we were just talking about the the, the good roles that they could play but what about this
4: so, um, with with obesity, for example, there have been many studies showing that uh, obese and lean individuals, whether humans or lab mice, whatever, have different communities of bacteria in their guts. Now, that doesn't mean that those communities are causing, um, you know, are making us fat or whether it's the other way around. But there have certainly been studies where you've ta- P-scientists have taken the microbiomes of um, fat mice and implanted them into those that lack microbes of their own and those mice then put on more weight than if you'd say implanted them with the microbes from a lean mouse and that certainly suggests that um the microbes in our gut can affect the way we process nutrients in our food and and how and how we how we transform that into into body fat um, and that makes sense. Now, the extent to which that matters for rising levels of obesity are unclear. What we can do about that is unclear. Um, and the same goes for something like autism. So again, um, there have been illustrative studies done in mice where, you, where scientists have found um, microbes that tamp down the uh, in the immune system that reduce inflammation and in some cases when they've put those microbes into rodents the rodents have shown reduced levels of symptoms that are similar to those you see in people with autism so less repetitive behaviors less um, more more uh, more tendency to sort of explore new things um, more uh, like a little bit more social boldness um, now there are massive caveats here of course Mice are not humans. Mice do not have autism. Autism is a human uh, social construct that's also affected by our views of what is normal. Um, but I think that the critical thing to take away from this is that our microbiome can affect our health. Our microbiome can affect our minds and our behaviour, um, and perhaps manipulating uh, the microbes inside us will allow us to um, influence some of um, some of the symptoms that are related to, to poor health. But that's still something that's being looked at at the moment. It's something for the future, rather than something we're on the cusp of doing right now.
1: So this is basically the, the state of the art right now that you're talking about in this, this um uh, these studies of just what the microbes do and how they affect us. Um have there been studies sort of going further than that and and talking about um how we can make use of them? I know there've been trial products that are like, you know, spray on bacteria that will be good for your skin and things like that. Um what what's happening on the on the treatment side?
4: Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of these things are very, very early. So, but like probiotics have been around for a very long time, and although they seem to be very good for infectious diarrhea, they are rather underwhelming for most other conditions. Um, and certainly regulatory agencies have taken a dim view of a lot of the health claims surround these products. There's another treatment, um, which is a little gross and certainly very unorthodox. Um, it's called a fecal transplant, which is exactly what it sounds like. So you take stool from a healthy donor and implant it into a sick donor in order to solve medical problems. And the, the specific problem that this has been used for and very successfully is infection with a microbe called C. diff. Clostridium difficile. It's a very very weedy type of bacterium that can cause um, severe, recurring, and often fatal bouts of diarrhea. Um, And C. diff, uh, fecal transplants have been amazingly successful at curing C. diff. Um, In one clinical trial, uh, standard antibiotics cured something like 27% of patients, whereas fecal transplants cured like 94%. That being said, it's then, it's, you know, based on that success, it's been tested on a lot of other conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or diabetes or whatnot, but with much more inconsistent results and lower success rates. So even when you take an entire community of microbes from one person and shove it into another, it's hard to to reset that ecosystem. In principle, it's a bit like trying to re turf a lawn that's been overgrown with dandelions, and and you know you get this lovely fresh uh, field of grass. But doing that in practice is very difficult. We need to understand, um, you know, how these microbes establish themselves. What what factors allow them to grow in a new environment? How do they interact with each other, with their hosts, with our with the native microbes? That that we already have in the, in our gut. Um, and these are the big questions that I think will move the study of the microbiome forward and, and advance its use um, to, in, in medicine. But we're such it was so much at the early stages of this, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write I Contain Multitudes, to give people a sense of the potential, but also to, to get a give a very rigorous view of where we stand now and what people should or shouldn't believe about the things that they're reading about this incredibly fascinating. And, um, and fashionable area of science.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
4: Book lovers
0: everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Hortella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
2: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Ed Young, the author of I Contain Multitudes. Uh, he's telling us fascinating stuff about microbiomes, the, uh, the microorganisms that live in our bodies. So what are these core takeaways that you want people to have when they when they read your book, when they think about this very, very early science and where it might go.
4: So I want them to think of um, microbes not as, uh, not as villains, not as things they must kill, but as crucial parts of our lives. I want people to realize that if they go to a zoo, um, every creature in that zoo is a zoo in their own right. Um, I want them to understand that when they look in a mirror and see themselves, they're not just looking at an individual, but as an entire community, as, as, a, as an entire world, or even a sea Series of different worlds um, and one of the things I really want to do with the book is to show people just how how wondrous even the most familiar parts of our lives can be if we look at them through this microbial lens so one really good example one of my favorite stories from the book involves um, breastfeeding and breastfeeding is is a very familiar thing you know we 've either all done it or taken part in it or seen people do it but um, It's actually very complicated. A breastfeeding mother looks like she's just nourishing a child, but actually about 10% of breast milk consists of these sugars that the baby cannot digest. They are there to nourish microbes in the baby's gut. And specifically, one particular strain um, called B. infantis, which Has evolved specifically to um, eat these sugars with great efficiency, and in return, it feeds the baby's gut cells. It shores up the lining of the gut to stop it from leaking. It um, quenches inflammation to train the baby's immune system. So, what we have um, in in breastfeeding is that a mother isn't just nourishing her infant, but also infantis. She is building an entire world. She's setting up a World inside her child, and that world is in turn setting up the baby. Um, so it's this wonderful um, symbiosis between human bacterium that's that with milk as the as the the connecting force between them. And and I think it's such an interesting way of looking at this thing that we all take for granted.
0: Uh, you talked about. Antibiotics before, and I just want to say what what needs to change in how we use antibiotics, uh, factoring both the microbiome and the rise as you said in antibiotic resistant bacteria
4: mm-hmm. so um, antibiotics fortunately the answer is actually the same for both of those things um, mm. the the answer is that we need to stop. Overusing them. So we need more judicious use of antibiotics. Um, these, these substances have done so much for us, they have saved countless lives. Um, but they also have collateral damage. An antibiotic is is an, an unsubtle weapon. It's like more like it's like a nuke rather than a sniper's bullet. Um, it destroys the bacteria that we rely upon as well as the ones that are doing us harm. Um, so by using them more carefully, Um, I'm not saying, uh, you know, let's demonize antibiotics and stop using them altogether. But by using them more carefully, we can avoid um, causing too much harm to our microbiome when we don't need to. And we will also forestall the rise of antibiotic-resistant antibiotics Bacteria, because it is um, the the um, the wanton use of these drugs is one of the factors that's fueling the rise of microbes um, that can resist almost all of the the things that we throw at them. Um, so you know it's a it's kind of a win win if we use them more carefully. We we solve two big problems in one stroke.
0: You just mentioned about this book, but tell us more about how this book came to you.
4: Um. So. I have been um, writing about science and about this particular topic for about 10 years um and it's it's one of my favorite things to write about because it does so greatly change um the way I see the world and it reveals the world as it truly is as a a planet dominated by and ruled by microbes and that we just happen to be living in and I think it gives you know I said in the in the subtitle that it gives us a grander view of life and and I truly believe that I think it it shows how interconnected we are to the rest of the world around us um sous and and I think that this area is full of amazing stories, and that's what I wanted to portray in the book. Um, I wanted to tell the stories about the scientists who work in this field, and there's such uh, there's such a great bunch of characters. You know, there's an Australian scientist who's been trying to load um, a bacterium into mosquitoes to beat diseases like dengue fever for the mm-hmm. last. He's been doing that for twenty five thirty years. I mean, the amount of dedication it takes to do that. Um, so. I I tell his story. I tell the story about uh, uh, scientists who have studied these uh, squid with glowing bacteria in them. Those who've looked at um, a- the aphids that destroy our crops and the bacteria that provide them with nutrients. Um, the ones who've looked at obesity and malnutrition uh, among humans. That they are. Um, for first and foremost, the, mi- the study of the microbiome is. A very human story. There are so many great narratives in this field um, about very intelligent, very passionate, um, very curious and eccentric people. And I wanted to get that across.
1: Let's step into the future for a little bit. You talk about the possibility of artisanal bacteria that could be designed to perform specific tasks. And it sounds like that's what this guy is trying to do with the uh, mosquitoes, for example. Tell us a little bit more about that and about maybe the the pros and cons of that.
4: So... With the mosquitoes, um, what we're doing there is to install a very, very common bacterium called Wolbachia into um, the species of mosquito that spread diseases like dengue and Zika. Um, and the reason we're doing that is that um, Wolbachia stops the mosquitoes from spreading the viruses behind these diseases. And it also happens to be really good at spreading through a wild population. So if you release small numbers of these mosquitoes, the bacterium will spread to those the rest of the wild population, and turn the entirety of the entire lot of them into um, into dengue-proof or Zika-proof insects. Um, so you're not killing any of the insects; you're just stopping them from being agents of disease. You're turning them into dead ends for the viruses. Now. Um, the other thing you asked about is, is different. So actually engineering microbes in order to, um, solve health problems. That, that is a different thing. And I think something that is being, it's in just the very earliest stages of investigation. So some scientists are trying to build microbes that genetically engineered microbes that could, for example, um, detect early signs of cancer and release um, cancer drugs or those that could spot signs of inflammation and calm it down. the, you know these applications, I think, will will be really interesting in the future. But we're still in a very early stage of being able to manipulate biology to that extent. And of course, the prospect of doing so makes people very nervous. Um, it, it should be far less nerve wracking to actually take naturally occurring bacteria and turn them into probiotics. And as I said, um, probiotics are, are a little underwhelming, but that's because they largely rely on very heavily industrialized and often proprietary strains of microbes that aren't very good at taking up shop in the gut. Um, Instead, we may do better by looking at very common species um, that uh, that are much better at colonizing the gut and to give them to people in in bigger numbers. Um, And that's something that a lot of scientists are looking at at the moment. They're trying to construct blends or cocktails of beneficial microbes that could solve conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. And so on, um, but you know, there's there's a lot of potential there, a lot of potential. But the the problem is that we're not just talking about you know the maths of the microbiome are, are very complicated. It's not just about saying here's a problem, I'm going to add this microbe, problem fixed. It, this is an act of engineering an ecosystem or shaping an entire world and a lot of our attempts to do so are very basic and stumbling still um trying to actually you know when you give people um these collections of microbes it's really hard to predict like whether they'll actually stay in the body what they will do how well they will compete against the microbes that are already existing within us um, and i think those are the questions that we will need to answer if we're actually going to turn these um treatments into successful ones.
1: So I have this weird reaction to antibiotics, which is that when I take them, uh, I have mood effects. I get depressed or I get anxious or I I get Mm. panic attacks. Um, And I've been wondering since then about the effects of uh, bacteria of the microbiome on mental health. Mm. Do we have any kind of research in that direction?
4: We do have quite a lot, but most of it, um, as, as with many of these things, is, uh, is in mice. Um, so we know that um, the microbiome in the gut can affect and animals' behavior—we everything from its mood to um, its attitude to risk, to its resilience to stress, to its propensity for anxiety. Um, some of these early studies are very compelling, but a little bit inconsistent. So it's hard to—you know—it's it's hard to say like whether this microbe increases or decreases anxiety and so on. Um, and there are some. Small preliminary studies suggesting that the same is true for humans—that the microbes in our in our gut might affect our minds too—but um, again, it's it's hard to get precise answers because we're such an early stage in this field. Uh, but it you know it makes sense; it is totally plausible. We know that um, there is a thing called the gut brain axis—a line of communication between the gut and the brain. There are nerves that run between those two organs. The immune system can can um, connect what's happening in the gut to what happens in the brain. Um, bacteria in the gut create neurotransmitters; they create things like do- dopamine and serotonin, which are typically thought of as brain signaling chemicals. So there, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that microbes could affect our behaviour. How they do so is still um, a bit of a mystery. Let alone how we might be able to manipulate our behaviour by changing the microbes within us. You know, could we? Could we? Effect Could we um, reduce some of the work, the um, symptoms of mental health problems like anxiety or depression by giving people um, specially formulated probiotics? Um, there are certainly psychiatrists and scientists who think that the answer is yes. Um, Probably not for really severe cases, but we might be able to do some good for, for milder symptoms. Um, but again, you know, this is a very, very active and emerging area of research. I think, you know, for a lot of people, it would just blow their minds full stop to realize that microbes could affect our minds. Um, the, the details, however, those are what we need to work out.
1: What's your key to making science accessible to the layperson? You've got this book, you've got your blog—not exactly rocket science. Um, you're talking about some very complicated concepts. So, um, when you're sitting down to write, what are you thinking about as uh, as a translator from scientist to the non-scientist?
4: Well, I try and think about you know how much I knew about how much I knew when I was doing science at high school. So I so not not a huge deal. Um, that's sort of the the level I'm um, the level of education that I'm aiming for. But I think the key to, to really good science writing is um, to never um, overestimate your readers' knowledge, but to never underestimate their intelligence either. Like science can be complicated, sure, but it's never too complicated that you can't explain it to people. You know, and it shouldn't ever have to be. These are things that affect all of us, and there are things that I think could interest all of us and um and i think all you have to do is treat people with respect um you know uh, and uh and to convey just how exciting this is and it genuinely is exciting to me i think it is it, it is um it is something that truly changes my perspective of myself and the world around me and i really want to convey that to people who who read the book
1: well, I'm certainly getting a sense of your enthusiasm. Is it is it wrong to say that it's infectious? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. I'm, I'm quite happy with puns.
1: We've been talking with Ed Young, and you can find his book, I Contain Multitudes, in stores right now. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to
2: Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
2: In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.